the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, the 25th of February, 2022. Coming to you, as always, from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. And of course, as always, I'm proud and happy to be here helping to report on just about anything I can find that I think is worth reporting on. Now, a lot of what I do in reporting these stories to you involves looking at web pages. <laughs> of course, you're probably going, of course, of course it does all this. Come on. The web, the internet. How, how would it not? Okay. Well, so here's the thing. Um, what if I told you that there's a journalist out there that um, was prosecuted by a state government here in the United States for viewing a web page in public domain. So this is not a web page that was behind a paywall. No, no. This is not a web page that was on some dark web server. This is not a web page that was protected by some corporate, you know, this is only for our intranet. How dare you? No, <laughs> none of that. Uh, this was not some sort of um, classified military or government secret page at all. But you see, there's there's a function that every web browser that's pretty much ever existed. Uh, in fact, I can't think of a single one. Even links the original, original text only web browser has this function. But there's a function you can find in web browsers called view source. Now, view source is a very important function. There's a reason why it's been available all these years in just about every web browser imaginable. And that's because what view source does, for those unaware, is it lets you take a look at the code used to create the page you're looking at. So if you're on a web page, you use the view source function, and suddenly instead of the web page being viewed formatted as intended for viewing by the person who made it, um, you get to see all of the HTML code. Now, this is not 
private stuff, okay? This is the code that gets sent directly to your browser every time you access the web page, right? So every time you open up a particular web page, that page's HTML code is being fed directly to your browser. The only reason you don't see it to begin with is because your browser takes that code and interprets it as formatting. So you can see this text is bold over here. This text is italicized over here. This text goes above this picture. This picture goes here. This text goes below the picture, all that stuff. HTML code tells the browser what to display on your screen and in what order. You know, I mean, that's pretty much how it works. Now, there's there's also um, what's called uh, CSS code, which um, basically allows your uh, web page even more fancy formatting. They use styles and things. Cascading style sheets, by the way, is what CSS stands for, which then allows you to have web pages where you have the same basic design elements page after page. But the point is this. All of this is generally speaking very publicly available. And if for some reason you don't want people to see the HTML coding of your page, there are ways to hide it. There are ways to secure it. There are ways to stop people from seeing the core code. If there's something in that code that could be considered private information that you don't want out there, right? code that the page needs to have access to for whatever reason that you just don't want people to be able to see by taking a page and hitting view code uh, view um, source. But again, in Missouri, authorities went after a journalist accusing this journalist of hacking just because the journalist happened to view the source code on the page. In October, Missouri Governor Mike Parson announced that he wanted to prosecute a journalist who had warned the state about a flaw in a government website, which exposed the social security numbers of more than 500,000 public school teachers. Now, now, let me just make sure I'm clear here, okay? Again, in Missouri, there was a government website out there available to the public, right? That had social security numbers belonging to teachers, half a million teachers, 500,000 public school teachers. And it was just right there in the easily viewable view source HTML code. This journalist found this out and said, oh, uh, um, guys, are you aware this is going on? Now, now, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm going to report on this, but before I do, I want to make sure that you guys have this locked down. I want to make sure that I'm not going to harm a single public school teacher by reporting that this page has their social security number. So I'm telling you, Missouri state government, that you've got a flaw in your HTML that's allowing all these social security numbers to be right there in the HTML source code, publicly viewable if anybody decided to, like me, go ahead and click view source. So I'm letting you know, fix it. 
fix it. Once it's fixed, let me know because I'm going to run the story once it's fixed. But I, um, I will not, said this journalist, I will not run the story until it's fixed because I do not want to be responsible for the damage that would be done by this becoming public knowledge before it's fixed. Yeah. So what happened? This journalist, <laughs> Josh Renaud of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch themselves were part of, uh, they, they, they had a criminal investigation launched on them by Missouri Governor Mike Parson. Now, the results of that criminal investigation were published uh, this week in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which acquired them using a public records request. This is according to a story on Vice.com, by the way. Now, last week, Locke Thompson, the prosecutor who looked into the case, announced there would be no charges. No, no, we're, we're not going to we're not going to charge Josh. No charges against Josh Renan. Finally, putting an end to what was a ridiculous attempt to punish a journalist for just clicking view source on the website. The Missouri State Highway Patrol Investigation. Yeah, the, the, the state police. That, that, that investigation into Renaud shows how police investigated what was a simple act of journalism. The document lays out the play-by-play of how the law enforcement officers found out about the flaw in the website and how they went about investigating the case. One of the things the investigators found is that the website in question had been vulnerable for 10 years prior to Josh Renaud pointing it out that he noticed, hey, uh, you've got a vulnerability here. And apparently that vulnerability had been around for a decade. And the fact that for all that time, the data was only encoded, but not encrypted. And that had never been noticed before. Now, a spokesperson for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said in a statement that the accusations against our reporter were unfounded and made to deflect embarrassment for the state's failures and for political purposes. The statement further says, this matter should never have gone beyond the state's initial intended response, which was to thank our reporter for the responsible way he handled the situation. Instead, too much taxpayer money has been wasted in a politically motivated investigation. Uh huh. The investigators talk to people who work at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, the DESE, uh, whose website, by the way, was vulnerable, and learned about how the Social Security numbers were exposed by the site's HTML code. Now, just so you know, the, the document itself defines HTML as HTML being a standardized system for tagging text files to achieve font, color, graphic, and hyperlink effects on worldwide web pages. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Basically, it tells your web browser how to display a web page. Now, one of the people interviewed was Mallory McGowan, the chief communications officer of the communications division for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, right? So Mallory McGowan told the investigator that what Renaud accessed was 
publicly accessible to anyone else. The investigator wrote in the report, from what she has observed, Mr. Renaud did not access anything that was not publicly available, nor was he in a place he should not have been. She said Josh Renaud appears to have only accessed open public data. And that was the problem. That's why he was warning them. 500,000 teachers' social security numbers were in the code of a web page that was open public data. Now, the authorities also interviewed Renan, who explained how he found the vulnerability and how he explained that viewing the source code of a website is standard practice in data journalism. The journalist also explained he never intended to publish or collect the exposed social security numbers, of course, and he agreed to delay publishing the story until the flaw was fixed. Authorities who interviewed Renaud repeatedly asked him what he planned to do with the data. You, what, what, why did you access the data? What did you plan to do with the data? Criminy people, I'm just trying to tell you, you've got a major problem here. Fix it. In another interview, police interrogated a computer scientist interviewed by Josh Renaud. The officer who interviewed the computer scientist repeatedly asked if what Renaud did was hacking. Was it, Yeah, but was he a hacker? I mean, we want to make sure to expose and, and, and arrest all these hackers out there. Was he hacking? No. Throughout the investigation, it's obvious that Renaud did the very best he could to warn the state government about the data exposure and to limit the potential damage by not disclosing the existence of the vulnerability before it was patched. In the end, though, Renaud and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch were put through a seemingly unpleasant criminal investigation for simply reporting the news. So why am I bringing this up? Why do I feel this is relevant? Well, it's actually extremely relevant. I'm trying to make sure to show you this very clear example about how people like myself, who are simply out there trying to make sure that we use the ability and the power of media to inform people in a responsible manner will be attacked if what we discover embarrasses those in power. If the people in power find that the media has actually served its purpose by holding the powers that be to account for their phobials, mistakes, and often outright, um, <laughs> shall we say, evil plans. The fact is, if we let the cat out of the bag, if we tell people that the government has had an issue that they really should be aware of, it's those of us who are trying to tell the truth. It's those of us who are trying to make sure that you know what's going on out there who are often the subject of intimidation tactics aimed at not just discouraging us from continuing it, but from discouraging anybody else from following our example.
Now I'm happy to tell you that stories like this serve as an inspiration to me at the very least to never let that intimidation hit home. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and we'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. I say every man, no one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media, airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central, podcasting every Monday evening. And Mikey, I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, it's probably going to be months before the Supreme Court uh, decides in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization whether to overturn Roe v. Wade. But in this latest round of attacks on Roe, a novel line of argument has emerged that forced pregnancy and forced parenthood no longer constitutes a hardship for women. Mm-hmm. This is reported uh, this week here in, in The New Yorker uh, by Kiangal Yamada Taylor. Um, basically, lawyers representing the state of Mississippi, which, by the way, is the <clears throat> appellant in the lawsuit, the uh, people who are appealing the decision, uh, trying to uh, knock Dobbs out of uh, being able to have the right to an abortion and also directly challenging Roe v. Wade in doing so. Um, So the lawyers representing the state of Mississippi describe a world that has fundamentally changed over the past 50 years in which the burdens of parenting have been lifted. Women have been empowered to have it all, to assume a career while still raising families. As for those women who would prefer not to parent, they now have the option to simply terminate their parental rights. <laughs> In a legal brief, Mississippi described a fantasy land where, as they put it, many largely postdating Roe laws protect equal opportunity, including prohibitions on sex and pregnancy discrimination in employment you know, where the law guarantees parental leave, where there's support to offset the costs of childcare for working mothers. <laughs> this, of course, ignores the fact that so many of these things happened after Roe v. Wade became law and uh, used that as part of the uh, foundational basis for these, uh, these, these laws. Anyway, <clears throat> the brief continues. Sweeping policy advances now promote women's full pursuit of both career, and family. In an interview with a local television station, the state attorney general, Lynn Finch, added, as a flourish 50 years ago, for professional women, they wanted you to make a choice. Now, you don't have to. Now you have the opportunity to be whatever you want to be. You have the option in life to really achieve your dreams, your goals, and you can have those beautiful children as well. Now, <laughs> These would be wild claims under normal circumstances. But in the midst of the pandemic, when childcare costs have been rising dramatically and when intermittent and impromptu school closures have forced nearly two million women out of the workforce, uh, these wild claims are now just uh, ludicrous. So, uh, according to the legal regime in Mississippi, the ability to give up one's child for adoption cinches the final loophole in the logic of banning abortion. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, by the way, uh, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, added her own gloss on this claim through her questioning of Jackson Women's Health Organization's lawyers, suggesting that safe haven laws, which allow women to relinquish their infants, mean that the obligations of motherhood no longer flow from pregnancy. Uh, She continued, It doesn't seem to follow 
that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go to 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Uh, All right. So before I continue, I'm going to pause here for just one moment and note that while the end result of pregnancy is generally speaking childbirth, that's not the only burden presented to a woman who is pregnant. So as a man, you might find it kind of weird that I'm going off on this, but, but let me, let me try to put this in some perspective for my fellow uh, non-uterus bearing people. Um, and even those who, who have one, but for whatever reason, aren't considering this, um, the body of someone who is pregnant goes through one of the most, if not the most dramatic transformations that will ever be seen in a mammal. This transformation is not pleasant to the person experiencing it overall. It's a great readjustment. It's a great reapportioning. It's a great reconfiguration of that person's body to become a development chamber for the upcoming birth. And by doing that, that person's body is no longer able to do nearly as well what it was able to do prior to the pregnancy. Okay? There are problems getting around. Things hurt that no that never hurt before. Many times there are digestive issues involved. There are problems. I mean, it's fa- the the most famous which of one is the uh, inability to keep one's food down sometimes, um, or uh, or the the craving of certain things because even things that you might personally normally find uh, abhorrent to eat just because uh, your body is craving a certain chemical to uh, help the development proceed, right? I mean, there are so many things. So many things that are imposed upon someone who is pregnant that they have to experience for nine months without even talking about the issue of childbirth itself. It's been made a lot safer to give birth, it's been made a lot better to be in a pregnant condition over the last few decades. There have been many advances in this area, but it's not burden-free. Someone who becomes pregnant is not equally burdened as someone who is not pregnant at the time. So this whole realm of logic, if you will, is based on the end result but says nothing about the process or the fact that the process takes up almost an entire year of that person's life. And I'm sorry, 
But the fact is we only have so many years of our life to experience anything. So no, 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 no. Focusing on birth is a red herring when it comes to whether or not there is inequality in being pregnant. Whether there's inequality in being forced to remain pregnant for the entire term. Still, the powerful men and women who are championing an end to abortion seek to recast an unwanted pregnancy as an inconvenience for professional women. But rich women have always had a bounty of choices when deciding to end a pregnancy and when deciding to have children, right? Mississippi State Attorney General Fitch likes to use her own story as a single mother of three, as evidence that women can have it all, because she was able to afford daycare and a nanny. Come on, it should go without saying. These are not options for poor and working-class women who, without access to abortion, will lose their right and ability to control their own destiny. Okay, In 2014, three-quarters of abortion patients qualified as low-income or poor. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute. Okay, That year, black and brown patients accounted for more than half of abortions performed. Now, that this case originates in Mississippi, the poorest state in the country per capita, twists this fairy tale into a, a cruel joke. In Mississippi, nearly half of women-led households live in poverty, almost twice the national average here. 12% of women in the state of Mississippi lack health insurance, compared with 8% nationally. Now, Justice Barrett's blithe suggestion that pregnant women simply go 15 or 16 weeks more ignores, among many burdens, that pregnant women in Mississippi die at higher rates than their peers in most states, even if you're including Louisiana and Georgia, okay? Because this case is no longer just about Mississippi. It also ignores the fact that black women are three to four times more at risk of dying in childbirth than white women. So for poor and working class women, a disproportionate number of whom are black and brown, overturning Roe v. Wade won't mean that abortions are going to end. It will mean that safe and sound abortions in healthcare facilities will move further out of reach. This dilemma has been a permanent feature of the modern movement for abortion rights. One study found that 80% of deaths caused by septic abortions in New York City in the 1960s involved black and Puerto Rican women. In Georgia, between 65 and 67, all these dates in the 60s, by the way, prior to Roe v. Wade giving the universal right to abortion, right? So, in Georgia... Between 65 and 67, the black maternal death rate was 14 times that of white women. For every white woman who died due to maternal child developing and birthing causes, 14 black women 
between the years of 65 and 67 died for those same causes. During this period, nurses reported that sticks, rocks, chopstick, rubber or plastic tubes, gauze, cotton packing, ballpoint pens, coat hangers, knitting needles, all of these were administered to try to terminate pregnancies out of desperation. For these women, access to abortion is not some abstract that you can argue, oh, it's all equal now. No, clearly not. It was a matter of life and death. If the Roe v. Wade decision had simply affirmed that access to abortion was elemental to the social equality of women, it would have become something closer to an incontrovertible right. Instead, with Roe v. Wade, the justices explicitly disagreed with the appellant's claim that the woman's right is absolute and that she's entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. No, the 21-page decision, written by Justice Harry Blackman, considers when life begins, the potential harm experienced by unwanted children, and the right to privacy between a physician and a patient. But there's nothing in the decision for Roe v. Wade about the equality of women and the ways that forced pregnancy impairs that actualization of equality. Within a few years, new legislation began to restrict poor and working-class women's right to an abortion. The passage of the Hyde Amendment in 1976 eliminated Medicaid funding of abortion, except in cases in which the mother's life was at risk. The impact? Instantaneous. The number of abortions financed by Medicaid dropped from 300,000 a year to just a few thousand. We're talking about 300,000, a few thousand. We're talking about like 200, I mean, 200 times less. Anyway, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court claimed to want to make a dispassionate decision, one not influenced by the larger debates concerning abortion. Blackman wrote, Population growth, pollution, poverty, racial overtones tend to complicate, and not to simplify the problem. So, by doing that, the court's decision reflected the narrowness of the mainstream women's movement, which viewed abortion as the singular way to measure women's right to control their reproductive lives. In both cases, the broad range of factors constraining women's equality was ignored because doing otherwise would open larger and more complicated issues involving equal pay, family structure, a social provision, uh, and a more capacious consideration of reproductive rights. It would also require accounting for the ways that women's equality had been, um, basically had been having different meanings for women who are not white or middle class. Black, Puerto Rican, Chicano women had different constraints and burdens in their daily lives that meant they would have different approaches to achieving liberation. When the National Organization for Women, NOW or NOW for short, formed in 1966, it, it patterned its mission after the civil rights strategy of changing the legal framework of discrimination. Yet even as NOW sorry, demanded, I should say, a dramatic expansion of rights for women, it all pretty much overlooked the concerns of poor and working class women of color. This was made 
absolutely obvious in 1969, when the National Organization for Women's President, uh, Betty Friedan, gave an address at a conference that marked the formation of the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. She said, as the Negro was the invisible man, so women are the invisible people in America today. We must now become visible women who have a share in the decisions of the mainstream of government, of politics, of the church, who don't just cook the church supper, but preach the sermon, who don't just look up the zip code and address the envelopes, but make the political decisions, who don't just do the housework of industry, but make some of the executive decisions, women, above all, who say what their own lives and personalities are going to be and no longer listen to or even permit male experts to define what feminine is or isn't. These were certainly examples and sites of sexism, but Frieden ignored the possibility that woman was not a universal category as she prioritized the problems of white and middle-class women as the most urgent. And and if there was any confusion over who she was addressing, Frieden went on to explain that the National Organization for Women's Purpose was to break out of the confines of that sterile little suburban family to relate to each other in terms of all the possible dimensions of our personalities. So, let's be clear. She was championing women who lived in sterile little suburban families. The chasm between middle-class white women's demands and aspirations and those of poor and working-class women of color began to be addressed by the emergence of black feminists in the late 60s. These women, who included Tony Cade Bambera, uh, Frances Beale, Alice Walker, Barbara Smith, they argued that real equality could be achieved only by expanding the parameters of what constitutes reproductive justice, so that it includes the entire context within which decisions about having or not having children were made. Organizations like the National Organization for Women mobilized predominantly white women to fight for abortion rights, but they often ignored or minimized the glaring issue of coerced or forced sterilizations, which was critical to women of color. According to a national study conducted by Princeton University in 1970, 21% of married black women had been sterilized. Over one in five married black women had been sterilized, incapable of reproducing. As the legal scholar Dorothy Roberts has observed, the dominant women's movement has focused myopically on abortion rights at the expense of other aspects of reproductive freedom, including the right to bear children, and has misunderstood criticism of coercive birth control policies. For black feminists, many of whom had become radicalized through their involvement in the civil rights movement, the persistent racism and sexism that they experienced compelled them to question the totality of American society, not just their place in it. In 1969, Beale penned one of the pioneering documents of black feminism, a pamphlet entitled Double Jeopardy, To Be Black and Female. Beale wrote, It is idle dreaming to think of black women simply caring for their homes and children like the middle-class white model. Most black women have to work to help house, feed, and clothe their families. 
Black women make up a substantial percentage of the black working force, and this is true for the poorest black family as well as the so-called middle-class family. This double burden, Beale continued, was ignored by many black men who may have seen the system for what it really is when it came to their own subjugation, but when it came to women, seemed to be reading from the pages of the Ladies' Home Journal. This inattention compelled black women to organize their own groups, set their own agendas, and develop their own strategies. What the Combahee River Collective would later describe as identity politics, by the way. By the time Beale wrote Double Jeopardy, she and several other black women in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, were leaving the group because of increasingly divergent ideas about the role of women in the black movement. Among black men in the movement, there was a pervasive belief that black women should follow the men's political lead. As Beale wrote, to assign women the role of housekeeper and mother while men go forth and into battle is a highly questionable doctrine for a revolutionary to maintain. Each individual must develop a high political consciousness in order to understand how this system enslaves us all and what actions we must take to bring about its total destruction. Those who consider themselves to be revolutionary must begin to deal with other revolutionaries as equals. And so far as I know, revolutionaries are not determined by sex. Now, this is more than a debate over the women in radical politics. Beale and her women comrades were chafing against the influence of Daniel Patrick Monahan's 1965 report on the state of the black family, which included a thesis that the emasculation of black men led them to retreat from their natural role as patriarchs, causing black women to take leadership in their families. In Moynihan's view, this gender confusion led to the collapse of black family life, spawning criminality among men and producing unruly children. Moynihan wrote, at the center of the tangle of pathology is the weakness of the family structure. Once or twice removed, it will be found to be the principal source of most of the aberrant, inadequate, or antisocial behavior that did not establish but now serves to perpetuate the cycle of poverty and deprivation. (laughs) Moynihan was criticized for essentially blaming black women for the poverty and hardship that shaped the lives of their families. In a speech a year after the report was published, the SNCC leader Stokely Carmichael said, To set the record straight, the reason we are in the bag we are in isn't because of my mama, it's because of what they did to my mama. We have to put the blame where it belongs. But for many other black men, Moynihan provided a framework in which they could understand their marginalization and attempt to repair the damage by reasserting their rightful positions as patriarchs. Assuming this role meant denouncing birth control and abortion as tools of genocide that compromise the future and freedom of black families. Uh, In 1971, the comedian and activist Dick Gregory wrote a cover story for Ebony that began, My answer to genocide, quite simply, is eight kids and another baby on the way. Now, Gregory, who never quotes his wife in the article or even mentions her name, goes on to claim that birth control and abortion both had been designed to limit the black population, describing them casually as methods of genocide. 
Speaking to the U.S. Commission on Population Control in 71, the Reverend Jesse Jackson said, virtually all the security we have is in the number of children we produce. For Beale, a single mother of two children and other black feminists, reproductive freedom, including access to birth control and abortion, and the right to have children on their terms was the most basic element of self-determination in a society where their choices were heavily circumscribed by racism, gender, and class position. As a result, black women activists not only took up the immediate questions concerning reproduction, but they also raised issues about childcare, about employment, raising issues about welfare and other the other material necessities that could help women take care of their children and choose to bring them into the world. By focusing on the plight of poor women, they made it easier to see that the struggle for abortion and reproductive freedom was about equality, not just privacy or even choice. Their insights into the ways that poverty and other forms of oppression limited their life chances, compelled them to demand reproductive justice which also involved the right to raise children in healthy environments, by the way, where their and their parents' basic needs could be met. It's a standard that was not achieved with Roe v. Wade. But it's needed now more than ever. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
Thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler this week. And as we wrap things up, I just want to bring you a piece of union-related news. And it happens to involve good old Starbucks. That's right. The place you may have gotten your coffee from this morning. And as it happens, Starbucks has used a massive legal team to slow the pace of union elections. But the coffee chain suffered a tough legal setback uh, about a week ago. All thanks to uh, (laughs) Microsoft Outlook. So, workers at several stores in upstate New York recently petitioned for union elections, just like the two stores in Buffalo had successfully unionized last year. Now, Starbucks, through its lawyers from the firm Littler Mendelssohn, has asked the National Labor Relations Board not to move ahead with the votes, arguing that elections for individual stores aren't really appropriate. The company wants all the stores within the region grouped into one big vote. Of course they do. You see... Here's the thing, and this is one thing that uh, anti-union people will never tell you. The longer you can delay a vote from when the workers are organizing it, the better the chances are that the union busters will have enough time and have enough resources spent to properly and thoroughly discourage enough of their workers from uh, voting yes for that union. Uh, so, yeah, they want to do anything they can to discourage. So they're like, no, 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 not individual stores like those two Buffalo <laughs> did. No, we want this to be delayed until we can get one big vote in the region. In New York, this uh, the strategy has had a problem because Microsoft Outlook crashed on Starbucks lawyers. You see, in order to make its case for the bigger union election, Starbucks had to submit what's known as a statement of position to the labor board and the union by noon on February 11th. The company's lawyers apparently didn't get all the paperwork to the union's lawyers until 12.08. Ellen I. Modell, lawyer for Little or Mendelssohn, explained the mishap in a filing to the labor board saying the files attached to the emails were just, they were too large. Modell wrote, just before noon, counsel attempted to send the complete service email a second time, but was again prevented from doing so when Outlook crashed again. Ian Hayes, a Buffalo-based labor lawyer working for Workers United, argued in a filing that Starbucks shouldn't be allowed to make its case because of the blown deadline. An official with the labor board sided with the union a week ago on Friday. Linda Leslie, a regional director for the National Labor Relations Board, wrote, Having carefully considered the matter, I find the employer's failure to timely serve its statement of position precludes it from litigating any of the issues raised in its untimely submission. <laughs> now, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. I know what you're saying. You're like, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. But you see, it is. And here's why. This is not the first time Little or Mendelssohn has used the exact same tactics that they're using now in many other cases. These are known union-busting lawyers. That's a huge firm. That's why Starbucks is using them. They didn't need to really reinvent the wheel on this one. They could have had these positions submitted well before the deadline, not just that day. They could have submitted them days in advance. It's not like these are novel things they're asking for. These are the same things they've been saying over and over again. But no, no, no. Just because they wanted to make sure they were just as absolutely, I don't know, whatever. They waited until the last hour to send these through and Outlook crashed on them. 
and the files were too large, they should know by now what the limits are on their structure. But no, they were incompetent. They waited until it was too late to, to uh, have any kind of um, buffer for potential mishaps. And so, no, denied. As that happens, that means that votes for unionization on several of the New York state stores could happen as, as soon as, well, right about now. So we'll see. Uh, I'll be keeping an eye on this. But just remember, the next time you order coffee from Starbucks, those workers are probably wanting union representation. And the company who's making the profit off that drink wants to stop them desperately. Thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you want to see the world for how it actually is, remember, all you got to do is take a deep breath. Find that center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. And then you'll be ready to see the world for how it is. And all you'll have to do is simply... Oh!